Black lady, black lady adulting. I got bills, I got school, I got, I gotta do. Got a husband with no kids. Every night we work on it. Black lady, black lady adulting. All my skin folk ain't kin folk. Zora Neale Hurston. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Black Lady Adulting, a podcast brought to you by yours truly, Joaquina Stone. Today, we are here to discuss HBCUs or PWIs. Recently in the media, there's been a lot of attention to um, and discussion about HBCUs, historically Black colleges and universities. You know, you have Beyonce with her homecoming. Um, We have Chris Paul and other NBA players and athletes. Uh, donning more HBCU paraphernalia. And so there's been a recent conversation about, you know, what's better for Black students, HBCUs or PWIs. So we're going to talk about that today. I brought on a guest who is a three-time graduate of HBCUs so that we can engage in some conversation about the benefits, the differences, and experiences um, at each type of institution. So I welcome my lovely, stylish, intelligent guest, Dr. Neri Ayu. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a full-time lecturer in the psychology department at Howard University. She received her BS in psychology from Bowie State and both her MS and PhD in developmental psychology from Howard University. So I know I said three-time graduate. She also went to Hampton University for a little bit. Um, Dr. Ayu's primary area of research involves examining psychosocially toxic environments, otherwise known as PTEs, so poverty, violence, discrimination, trauma, et cetera, um, and their impact on how their impact on psychosocial well-being among marginalized youth, particularly those in out-of-home care. Her culturally responsive approach to research extends beyond the classroom. Um, but she connects lived experiences and theoretical concepts to offer a contemporary style towards teaching psychology. Her students often comments on her amazing in- instructional style, but also her like general style because she'd be fly <laughs> Um, And so with that, I welcome my guest, Dr. Neri Ayu. She's also my cousin, um, Dr. Neri Ayu. So welcome, Neri, how Thank are you? you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. No problem. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast, Black Lady Adulting. I think that uh, when I thought about this topic, you were the first person I thought of because I think both you and I have like different backgrounds in terms of education, but like similar like uh, values and morals and, you know, all these other things. But we come from two completely different educational backgrounds. Um, So I thought you would be perfect for this conversation. Can you tell me about your college experience and why you chose to go to an HBC? Okay, so going back to undergrad, which is so many years ago, um, I had visited Hampton University and I fell in love with Hampton University. And when the applications or when the acceptance letters were coming in, Howard was actually my first letter, but it wasn't an acceptance letter. It was a housing letter. So I was like, okay. And then Hampton's letter came in and then I was like, okay, this is an official acceptance letter. And so I think I just chose Hampton because I had visited Hampton and I just loved it. But I did apply to like William and Mary. I think there was some all girls school that I applied for as well. And I ended up at Hampton um, and I was in the pharmacy school that did not work out. So <laughs> I ended up transferring to Bowie State University and then I went on to graduate school at Howard University. So I actually happened upon an HBCU 
not intentionally in terms of that was my number one school. Um, it literally just happened to be my first acceptance letter and I was just eager to get into school. So that's how I ended up at Hampton to start. And you know what, that's so interesting that you were not intentional about being at HBCUs. And on the flip side, so I'll share a little bit about my, my academic background. Um, my, I was intentional about going to an HBCU and I never ended up there. And so <laughs> in undergrad, I applied to, um, I think I applied to Howard. I applied to Fort Valley State. That's not as well known of HBCU, okay. but at the time I wanted to do engineering. They had a really good engineering program. Um, and I applied to some, you know, PWIs and I ended up, you know, I applied to a state school, Oregon State University. I also applied to University of Oregon and I ended up needing to stay home for college because of some health things that I knew I was going to have to deal with. Um, and so my mom was just kind of like, it's probably best for you to stay home. And so I ended up at Oregon State for, you know, my undergrad. For grad school, I went to University of Maryland for my master's and I wanted, again, I was always trying to find my way to Howard because I, <laughs> I grew up in DC. And so I knew like that Howard was like a really good school. And so um, for grad school, I applied there and well, I didn't apply actually, let me take that back. They didn't have the program that I wanted. Um, and so I ended up at University of Maryland cause they had a higher ed program. And then for my PhD, I applied to Howard, got in, but then I wasn't getting any money. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go back to University of Maryland because I'm not getting any money. So I think it's so interesting that your journey in education has been focused on, like you just kind of happenstanced, uh, you know, to be at HBCUs. Um, and I just kind of happenstanced to be at, you know, PWIs. And so before I move forward, I do want to say one thing that's going to irk me because I don't like using the term PWI. Um, I, I, I don't like it. Um, and I'm going to tell you why. So PWI stands for predominantly white institution. And I'm sure that folks listening already know that. But the reason why I don't like that term is because predominantly means, like if you look it up, it means for the most part or mainly, like that's how it's defined, like for the most part mainly. So we're saying mainly a white institution. And on the other hand, we say, you know, historically black colleges and universities as though to imply like there's a history behind you know, why these institutions are predominantly black or mostly black. And while there is, you know, there is history behind why HBCUs are, you know, black institutions, there's also history behind why PWIs are white. And so when we just say predominantly and just kind of make it seem like, oh, it just happens that there's more white folks at this school, that's not true. Like it was written into law. There were intentional things that happened that policies that passed that prohibited black students and other students of color from being at those institutions. So that's, I really just don't like the term PWI because I think it's the way that we, like this is how erasure happens, right? When we, when we use language that doesn't represent what actually happened. It's like in Texas, how they decided they wanted to, um, they wanted to change the name of the slave trade to the triangular trade. When you remove certain words or language, it makes it, it, it erases the history behind it. And so that's my little, uh, my little rant that I, I actually really hate the term PWIs. I would prefer to say HWI um, because I think that is more fitting and matching for how we talk about black institutions. So I might- Historically you know, white, your HWI, historically white institutions. Yes, yes. Okay. So I think that does a, a better job of kind of like capturing the racist history of these institutions that, that made them historically white. 
Um, so anywho, that's a tangent. Okay. But <laughs> and so so you said that you just kind of chose, you just kind of stumbled upon these institutions. Tell me about your experiences while you were there. Oh my gosh. So Hampton um, is known as our home by the sea. And Hampton, it's a unique experience. Um, so Hampton is one of those popular HBCUs, more the well-known HBCUs amongst there for Spelman, Morehouse, and Howard. Um, so Hampton in Virginia, um, really small community. And so I realized that attending an HBCU, at least Hampton, it wasn't the way I thought it would be. So I always imagine it will be like Spelman um, in terms of what we saw on the Cosby show and I was shocked. And so I just had this idea that all my professors are gonna be black and that was a shocker. I think I had maybe like two black professors um, throughout my two and a half years while I was at Hampton. Um, and you also realize that even at an HBCU, whether this is undergrad or grad school, there's so much diversity. And so the idea that we all, maybe the majority of us may self-identify as black, there's still diversity within that. Um, and so you literally had a mix of everything. You had the elites, you had the folks who are first time, um, first generation college students. And so you had a mix of different experiences, people from different areas. You had legacies in terms of my father went to Hampton, my great-great-grandfather. And so this was just my trajectory. Um, my parents went to school in Nigeria. So there was no you know, such thing as an HBCU. Um, and so when you end up attending the HBCU, it was like, okay, this is a part of history um, and your role in it. Um, but Hampton was just an amazing experience. When I transferred to Bowie State, when I switched majors, that was a little bit different. Um, Bowie State is more of like a commuter university. So community, you just have to be more purposeful and intentional in creating community. And then when I got to Howard for graduate school, um, the fun kind of stopped because it's, I'm older now. So uh, it's a different experience attending the HBCU for grad school compared to attending the HBCU for like undergrad. Um, but I think each experience that I had taught me something different, um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think your experience uh, in terms of like valuing that experience and not wanting to trade it for anything in the world is similar to what I hear from, you know, my friends who have gone to HBCUs. So regardless of, you know, the long lines of financial aid or <laughs> issues with residence life, um, you know, people still have like a fond uh, loving experience. And I do think that a lot of that is because you're in an environment and I'm guessing I worked at HBCU. Um, <laughs> I work at an at an organization that serves HBCUs. I often say that that's my HBCU. Um, so I can't speak from experience in terms of as a student, but I think from an outsider looking in, I think even just being in an environment where there is like so much diversity of blackness, um, it's just like, you know, it's unmatched. Like it's just unmatched. Yeah. I think also, well, I'll speak for Howard. Um, if you think about like the mission of Howard and truth and service, it's the idea that we can all be so different, but we still all embody those values. Um, and so I think the unique thing with Howard, Howard is all about activism, is all about um, advocacy um, and just valuing us as, you know, black people or, you know, people of color in general. Um, 
And so there is a unique spirit at every HBCU. And I think Howard's experience in terms of being in Washington, being, you know, that close to the White House and to politics and to policy um, makes a really huge difference if you compare that experience, you know, to a smaller school that's in the middle, you know, in a rural area. It's a different type of experience in terms of that you get being in Washington, DC, being on Howard's campus, literally being 15 minutes from the White House, for example. And then you mentioned, you know, the long lines at financial aid office. <laughs> um, and that's a unique issue with HBCUs in terms of funding. Um, and so sometimes, I find that as, as a student, it's like, oh my gosh, is this a black issue that we have? But we have to kind of think about it historically that HBCUs do not get the, get the same funding as our historically white institutions. And so there's a reason for those long lines at a financial aid office. There's a reason why we complain about our dorms because they are historic dorms. And by law, you can only do so much in terms of renovating an historical building because if you renovate it too much, it's no longer historical and then you lose funding. Um, and so sometimes as students, we kind of, or at least when I was a student, we forget the historical issues regarding HBCUs. And we was like, well, why can't we have this? Or why can't we have that like our neighboring institutions? And part of that is we don't have the same financial resources as our neighboring institutions. So. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought that up because um, for a couple reasons. One, um, I think that there that people don't often pay enough attention to that very issue, that funding for HBCUs is a part of whiteness, white supremacy. And I know I talk about like whiteness and white supremacy a lot on this podcast, but that's just because that's race is, good, right? it is, it is, right? Race is in everything. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop a couple of just facts related to um, the development of higher education because I am an academic at heart or I'm aspiring to be one. Um, Soon to be Dr. Know. Stone, yes. Yeah, soon to be Dr. Stone. And, so I, and, and because I'm focusing on education, it just feels weird to not talk about um, some of these historical things that have impacted the funding of HBCUs. So even though HBCUs were founded to educate African-Americans in, in a particular skill or trade, they were also developed to maintain segregation. So it wasn't like this pie in the sky, like, oh, let's have education for Black folks. It was really because, nah, we don't want y'all going to school with... Um, with white, with our white kids. So there's that piece. Um, the first moral act, which provided funding to states for the development of state colleges and land grant institutions, um, many of the many of the schools that this grant or this act funded were, you know, white land grant institutions that prohibited students of color um, and black students from attending. And it also left HBCUs, that the ones that were developed at the time, severely undersupported if they were supported at all. And so years later, we got the second Morrill Act, which mandated that, I think in 1890, which mandated that states with segregated higher education systems were required to provide equal funds for the development of historically black colleges and universities. So basically saying like, we have to give, you know, we gonna give University of Maryland, this amount of money, we gotta give Bowie State this amount of money. So it was about equality. But six years later, Plessy versus Ferguson um, occurred, which made it permissible for institutions to practice segregation as long as the facilities were equal. So this whole idea of like separate but equal, which, you know, never really happened. 
So during Plessy versus, or during a critical race analysis of Plessy versus Ferguson, um, a researcher, Sean Harper, found that you know white land grant institutions were still receiving state appropriations at a rate of 26 times more than black colleges. So even as the law, laws changed, equality you know still had not been actualized. Then you fast forward to Brown versus Board of Education, separate but equal is illegal. Is illegal. Um, and then students who would have typically attended HBCU started to go to HWIs and that impacted the funding of HBCUs because their enrollment numbers were lower. Mm -hmm. um, and then black students, in addition to that, black students were not receiving the culturally relevant pedagogy that they, that they once received. So when HBCUs were first founded, it was more black educators that were teaching, you know, skills, trades, English, math, whatever, whatever these topics were. And we started to lose our educators and some of them went to you know, other institutions, but that also meant that black students at HBCUs and elsewhere were not receiving culturally relevant pedagogy. So you talked about Neri, how you were you know, at Hampton for two years and only had two black professors. I, I imagine, and I don't know why, but I imagine that the evolution of how these institutions have been supported financially and what uh, Brown versus Board of Education did I think that impacted the, the, the teachers that went to certain institutions um, and also the students. And yeah. then, you know, present day, and this is my last, you know, factual point, um, present day, we still have issues with equal funding for HBCUs and historically white institutions. So you think of, we're in the state of Maryland. So you think of, there were several Maryland HBCUs that sued the state because they were not receiving the same funding as their University of Maryland or you know other land grant institutions. So I say all that to say, I know that was a lot, um, <laughs> but I say all that to say that I think that that is part of, a huge part of why HBCUs do have you know longer longer lines and you know buildings aren't as um, up to date and other issues that the the institution may have and I think what bothers me I remember being an undergrad and there was often this conversation about HBCUs versus HWIs but in the terms of like which one is better mm -hmm. and so people will be like well HWIs are better because blah, 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 blah. You don't live in a world with black, with all black people. And, you know, HBCUs would be like, well, HBCUs are better because for nine months out of the year, I ain't got to deal with racist white folks. <laughs> um, and so there's different. And so I don't want to have that conversation about like what institution is better. Cause I think that you get what you need from the institutions that you go to. You know what I mean? So like, I always wanted to go to HBCU. It didn't happen. It wasn't in the cards for me, but I got what I needed. Um, and so what are some of your thoughts? I know I said a whole lot, but what are some of your thoughts about anything that I just said or specifically around this, this need to compare and contrast between the different type of institutions? Got you. So I'll talk about it from a faculty member's perspective and also as a student perspective. Um, and so I've met like colleagues who you know, when they get out of grad school, their goal is to get into a HWI, um, a prestigious university. And so, you know, they would look at a John Hopkins University or a Harvard University, you know, faculty position, definitely over an HBCU 
um, faculty position. And part of that goes with funding. Um, and so if you're going to a research institution, you wanna know that this university can support your research goals and that requires money. And so there's a package offer. And so when your institution has more money, they can offer you a better package compared to a university that doesn't have the same kind of funding available for new faculty hires. Um, and so I think that also goes to just this idea that when you're at a certain place or university or you know firm, whatever your career path is, there is an elitist idea behind this that I finally made it. And so I find that for individuals who typically, or not, because people need a job, right? So you have individuals who will apply to anywhere, um, but there's also a unique set of individuals who purposely and intentionally want to be at an HBCU. Um, and so when you think about an experience at an HBCU, it's not the idea that every faculty member is going to support you. So for those nine months, you can have a faculty member who is not about, you know, <laughs> supporting you. They're just about, this is your assignment, you know. So I think HBCUs, because of funding, it affects every level. It affects the infrastructure of the university. It affects who they can hire, the amount of faculty they can hire, staff that they can hire, enrollment. You get what I'm saying in terms of the number of students that they can accept, housing. Um, and so if you kind of remove those barriers, um, it can create new opportunities. Um, and so if you kind of think about it where they are right now, you end up finding that HBCUs are supportive in the sense of community, not just faculty members, but the community overall in terms of we're all moving with a general mission in terms of in everything that we do is about service. And I think that's the unique experience when your university truly embodies its mission statement. As a student at an HBCU, I think the conversations in terms of you know that university supports you. You know that university supports if you want to protest. Like, and Howard has had their number of protests over the years, even on campus, protesting about issues involving campus administration. Um, and so I find that the supportive environment um, is unique to the university, but like at an HWI, for example, you will have your Black Student Association. And so you end up finding or creating groups that are supportive of your needs. I will say that issues of, for example, like a noose hanging in a classroom, um, fortunately, we haven't experienced those kinds of things um, versus, you know, your experience in terms of, you know, even, you know, hate crimes that have been committed on. HWIs in terms of the number of comparisons to those at a HBCU, um, insignificant in terms of just the number of occurrences. And so I would think that, like you said, it's not what's better and you know, you get more support, or I think it's just the idea that you want to be at an institution that has your same values, regardless of it being an HWI or a HBCU, um, in terms of you want to be in a community that shares your values. If not, you can have a disconnect. And even at an HBCU, if I had students who still don't fit in. Um, so it's really about finding what works for you and your particular niche, wherever that may be. But it's really about exploring and having that opportunity. Because you can end up at a Howard and it's like, this is not a good fit for me. A smaller institution somewhere else can be a better fit. Um, 
So I just think overall, you you make your college experience based off of how much you're willing to put in and how much of a community that you're willing to form. And I feel like with community, you can form that anywhere. Um, but you also want to be in an environment that is inclusive. So you can have your many communities, but you still want to feel welcomed on campus, not feel like an outsider. <laughs> All right. Um, so before I answer what you just asked me, I just need to say that it's thundering and lightning right now. So if y'all hear noise or if it's hard to hear, I'm so sorry. Um, of course, I just got a text saying that there's a tornado watch. So I just hope that I don't go away. <laughs> I'm trying to record this podcast. Um, but, and I might not even be answering that question that you asked, but I, I do think that um, community is key. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, like I said, I ended up at Oregon State. It wasn't about like, oh, Oregon State aligns with my values and it met. No, I can't even tell you what Oregon State's mission statement was. But I do believe in destiny. I do believe in fate. And I think that God wanted me in that space. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to form a very strong community at Oregon State, um, the Black Student Union. Um, the, there was this place called the Black Cultural Center that I would hang out at. And when I first got to Oregon State, so I was a, um, what's it called when you, uh, work study. I was a work study student. Um, and so I needed, you know, I had to work in order to um, make enough money to attend school, but also um, because of my financial study or my financial status at the time, I was awarded a work study position. And I remember the job that I had, I worked at a cafeteria and I got to Oregon State two weeks early before other students, or not even before other students, but before like your orientations or your welcome week or all that stuff started. And so I remember calling my mom that first two weeks, like every day, like I hate it here, I wanna go home. Because I was the only, I was the only black person in this work study group. And so we were there learning how to like get in our food handler's card and learning how to, bake the pizza and serve the food like hairnet and everything the glow up is real y'all because I was a hot mess my, <laughs> my first year um and I remember um this black woman she's actually one of my profiles one of my sores but she came once school opened she came through the line um at the cafeteria and she was like I've not seen you before what's your name I'm such and such you should come over to the VCC um and we have, you know, a Black Student Welcome Week and come over, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, cool. So I went to the BCC and I was like, this is where all the Black people hang out. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't get me to leave. And after that, like, I think my first year I worked in the cafeteria and then I got a job at the BCC and I worked there the rest of my time there. But the reason being was because I felt a sense of community. Um, I felt a strong sense of community. There were, you know, just folks willing to support you, tell you what classes to take, who not to take, um, you know, where to go on campus to get certain things, what food was trash. And so that community really sustained me. And I often credit Oregon State with me ending up in education. Because like I said, I started off as an engineering major. I was gonna be this black woman engineer. <laughs> and I got to one engineering class and I was like, oh no, this is not for me. Right. And so I was undecided for like a year and a half because I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I wanna do. I ended up doing speech communication, but um, my activism in college. So like I got very uh, involved in, like I said, student groups, but protested nooses on campus, you know, protested blackface. Um, 
And that really helped me to establish my voice. And so as much as I wanted to be at an HBCU, and maybe I would have had, a, you know, maybe I would have established my voice at a different way at HBCU. Um, but I think that Oregon State taught me the things that I needed to learn in terms of how to advocate for, uh, for others, how to advocate for people who look like me in spaces that don't reflect me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, really birthed in me my desire to support students of color, particularly Black students. And so I credit Oregon State with that. And I feel like if I hadn't had that experience, I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know where I would have, where I would be, um, where I would be right now. But I think the other piece that I, I also want to touch on is I feel like there is a certain uh, perception of black students who go to PWIs or historically white institutions or black students who go to HBCUs. Um, and it bothers me. Uh, like, I feel like I remember one time somebody at work was like, you didn't go to an HBCU, Jokini? you seem like you would have. Um, <laughs> and I guess, you know, because I'm so pro-black, it seems like I would have, but I also feel like there's this misconception, like not everybody that go to HBCUs, not all of them are pro-black. Like not all of them are, you know, care about the struggle for black people. Not all of them care about black community. There are definitely folks who do, but there are folks who align themselves with whiteness as well. And so I think that there's this perception that like, oh, if you go to a PWI, you're less black. I also saw this t-shirt, um, two people sent me this t-shirt that said, uh, it said, PWI educated, but black AF. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the folks who sent it to me probably were like, oh, this is you. <laughs> I'm like, why do I need to, why do I need this uh, qualifier that like, oh, I went to a, a PWI, but I'm still black AF as though to apply, imply that like everybody who goes to HBCUs are black AF. Like that your where you go to school does not mean that you're more black than someone else. So what about white folks who go to HBCU? We gonna give them a black card? No, like some of them try to get it, but no. And so um, I think that there's this perception of students who, of black students who go to PWIs, historically white institutions, um, and and black students who go to historically black colleges and universities. And that bothers me. Yeah, I I think that's, I mean, there are stereotypes, you know, and they get perpetuated over and over again um, because there are some people who purposely, you know, for the blackness and there are people who happen to end up there by happenstance, right? So it's really, is a real mix. And I found, I have met students who have never experienced racism a day in their life. Um, Mm -hmm. And they, for example, race isn't salient in their lives. And so when they get to Howard, they're like, why are we always talking about this and that? And they're uncomfortable. And then there are students who, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what I, you know, and so it's just a mix. And I feel like we have to move past those stereotypes, past those stereotypes of why your hair is natural, right? And so, oh, you go to Howard, you know, your hair is out or your hair is locked, it means something. You don't like meat, you know. <laughs> One of my good friends, you know, when she went natural, it, it was like, my hair was falling out. This point blank period. I had to stop getting perms. My hair was falling out. Nothing about me trying to embrace my roots. It had nothing to do with that. And that's so, I think some people get so comfortable with stereotypes. It's like, all right, let me just group you here. Um, and if you think about like HBCUs there, and I love it when I see someone who 
they've gotten into the Harvards, they've gotten into the Yales, and they will say, I want to go to Howard, I want to go to Morehouse, because, um, and I feel like it gives people an opportunity to, to think more about what kind of educational experience you want. Is it just a name or is it more to it? Um, and so there are individuals who, I have to go to Howard, it's in my legacy. My grandfather went to Howard, my mother went to Howard, my mother pledged at Howard University, I have, to, and then this is the path. And so there are generational things and I think life is all about carrying out a legacy. And so if that is your choice, you know, and that's how strongly you believe in legacy, then go for it. And there are people who it's their first time and then maybe that's what they want to start, you know, this tradition. Um, and so there's so many reasons why people will end up at an HBCU, but it's not simply because it's to support, you know, pro-Blackness, even though there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but everyone, because like you mentioned, there are a number of individuals who are not African-American or self-identify as African-American. Um, if you look at the sports teams, if you look at the tennis team, you will definitely see diversity. If you look at the soccer team, you will definitely see diversity of um, Caucasian students, uh, international students who come just for the scholarship to play on these teams and vice versa in terms of how you will have black students at OSU. You get what I'm saying in terms of their scholarship. And so if there's funding, go to where there's funding because who wants debt? No one wants right. No one wants that school debt. Um yeah, so it's it's a misconception um, that outsiders have if you go to an HBCU. There's a misconception that you as a student will have when you go to HBC, oh, we're all gonna get along, we're all gonna be the same. You're like, whoop, um, what part are you from? <laughs> like, because even at HBCUs, you got the Detroit, um, people from Detroit, you got LA, there are always groups that we create, you know, so there's community within community. Um, even on Howard's Yard, you have like the Caribbean section, you have the Nigerian section, you have the plots, um, and this is all on the yard, but we all are still under the same umbrella when we all come together. But there are so many differences. Um, and I think understanding that is the first approach to just understanding human beings in general. So regardless of what school I went to, don't make an assumption. I could be like your teacher says, I could have gone to that HWI, but I could just be regular AF, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Right. Or I don't, you know? So I just feel like stereotypes don't do us any good. Um, and so just having a conversation, what was your experience like? Why did you choose to go to that university? Um, because everyone's experience is different, but I feel like it needs to be a conversation versus an assumption that we make about individuals and their choices. And I think that some people um, need to be at HBCUs and some people need to be at HWIs. Like I think about one of my friends who he, um, he went to Oregon State with me and he does a lot of work 
at Oregon State now to talk about like diversity and inclusion and how they can improve their policies. And so for him being in that space is helping him to create more space for other people who come after him. And some people want and need that. And there's some people, you know, they they go to HBCUs to, you know, get that community to get their soul fed and they end up, you know, continuing to do work with the black community beyond or they have a certain mindset that they keep with them as they work in different spaces that helps to support, you know, other black folks and some folks don't. And I think that that is okay. I think we need to 100% agree with you in terms of let go about what these stereotype or what, like let go of our preconceived notions about the decisions people make about their education. Now, if I have some kids, I'm sending them to HBCUs. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't, I mean, I will, I'll leave it up to them, but I'm going to strongly advocate for it. Um, only because I do think that removing certain layers of identity does remove some obstacles, you know? So at, you know, Oregon State, I had to deal with classism, racism, sexism. And at an HBCU, it might just be classism and sexism. And for me, racism is one of the most um, insidious, vitriolic just like just one of the worst things about you know American fabric and so um if I can remove some of those hardships like yeah I'm gonna send my child to an HBCU right. um but I but I also think that you get what you need so like when mm -hmm. I even think about my current stint in grad school at University of Maryland I remember the day that I went to campus to get my ID card and it felt like uh, it was just such a heavy cloud because when I where I parked on campus uh, was near this bus stop. And so I'm walking, I'm looking at the bus stop and I see all these flowers and it's like a memorial. And I realized that that is the bus stop where Lieutenant Richard Collins was murdered by a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. And so I walked and he was a Bowie State student who happened to be on campus waiting at a bus stop, uh, you know, late at night and this white racist nationalist, nationalist, whatever, however he identifies, mm -hmm. um, attacked him, stabbed him, killed him. And as I'm walking past that memorial to go get my ID, I felt like filled with sadness. Like, how am I going to survive a place like this where mm -hmm. by nature of being black makes me a target? And I, I almost had a mind to call Howard back and be like, I know I rescinded, like, but can I, can, well, can I rescind my, you know, decline? Um, but, you know, I, I went, I got my ID, I got in the car. And actually, I think when I got in the car, I cried. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm gonna make it here. And I think God has showed me that Maryland is where I need to be. My faculty are amazing women of color. They're all women of color. The experiences that I've had um, access to different research opportunities and just mentorship and then pouring into me. I was like, I, I don't know had, I don't know if I would have stayed, uh, I don't know if I had attended Howard if I would have gotten this experience. And maybe I would have, mm -hmm. but I just know that, you know, I just, I say, I'd like to say that I think that you end up where you need to be and it is up to you to take from that experience what it is that you need. And so, yeah, that's my, my little rant about that, but I did, I wanted to point something out because you talked about, you know, Howard in the yard and, you know, different plots, which makes me think of our illustrious organization. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always, uh, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about Greek life um, at different institutions. So, and we don't have to go into detail. We don't have to, we don't have to do all that because, you know, we, we just ain't got to do all that. But <laughs> I do think that, um, you know, at, at Oregon State, I always used to get annoyed because, you know, the narrative around 
um, MPHC organizations was like, oh, well, you all created these organizations so that there's a space for you on white campuses. And I was like, well, while some organizations were founded on historically white institutions, many of them were founded at Howard. So that argument is not like, oh, we're trying to fit in or we need a safe space. Like, no, that's not, you know, that's not what it was about. And so, but however, I think at historically white institutions, for some people, that's what that space is, is a safe space. Um, and I think it might've been a little, it might've been a little bit of that for me, but I, um, I'm, I'm just curious about your perspective on, you know, Greek life and community in that way. So I think for me, like when you think about community, it's always kind of finding your place um, or in identifying people on campus that you admire or you look up to. And so Greek life at an HBC, that's part of an HBCU uh, is, ingrained, you know, if you think about Howard, um, it's just once again, part of that community. And I feel like it's ingrained in the fabric of an HBCU. And once again, it's historically, we had to create spaces. We had to create organizations. We had to create our own scholarships <laughs> because it wasn't being offered. Um, and so if you think about like those historical white institutions, they've had their own Greek life from the ages. They have their own organizations. Um, and so I think part of an HBCU experience may, for some, will be to engage in Greek life. For others, it's like, nah, I'm not really into it. Um, and they may find community elsewhere. And so I know a lot of it has to do with legacy as well. Your mom was one, your grand, like, but you know the values, because it all goes back to service. And so it's not just being a part of organization is what that organi organization does, um, especially giving back to community. So everything I think ties back to community. Does your institution give back to its community? Um, Howard University has um, elementary school on campus. And so not only are you showing young people of color in the district that this is what the future can look like. You are actually attending school on a college campus. And for some individuals, they may not have the opportunity to even visit a college campus or see a college campus until they're like 18 versus you have young kids who are 10, 11, they go to school on campus at a university. And so I think it's for some, your HBCU experience may not be complete if you don't like dabble or these kind of look into Greek life. Um, and so I think it's, I've never experienced what Greek life will be at an HWI um, in terms of the value on campus. Does the institution value, you know, Greek life? Um, whereas I know at an HBCU, the institution itself values the organization because of what the organizations stand for, um, because it supports the mission, you know? So however you can give back and service, service, service. And I think that gets lost in terms of, well, what's the point of HBCU? What's the point of Greek life? And I think that when you're not educated, you can be dismayed that there's really no point, but the point ingrains a continuous need to give back and service is a big thing. And even donating back to university. So when you think about HWIs, um, just in terms of resources, 
is the fact that they have endowments, right? Um, people who literally give back millions and millions of dollars. And so when you think about HBCUs, it's not just enough for us to attend HBCU. We need to figure out how we can give back to the HBCU to keep them in business, if you kind of think like that, um, in terms of supporting, right, or supporting students. Um, because one of the issues with an HBCU is retention in terms of keeping students in school. And part of keeping kids in school has to do with funding. It's not cheap to attend in college in general, um, but it's definitely not cheap because half of the historically backed institutions are private institutions. Private institutions already <laughs> are so much more expensive than a public institution. So if you think about Bowie State's tuition and Howard University's tuition, definitely not in the same ballpark, not at all. Um, and so Greek life, like I said, it's ingrained. Um, it's part of the fabric of an HBCU um, and it's supported at the institution. I don't know if it's supported and you can talk about your experience if the university itself supported it um, or, oh, it's just an organization, but it's literally a part of the fabric of an HBCU. What are your thoughts? Um, I think the support piece is important when looking at HWIs because, you know, as a member of various student groups on campus that were often student groups made up of people of color, we didn't have the funding. Like we often did not have the funding, the institution, um, they supported us in theory, but not necessarily in practice. And so the funding that other organizations would receive, we wouldn't receive um, for different events, um, you know, we would have to pay for security out of pocket, whereas white organizations did not have to have, you know, security for their events. And so there were some of those dynamics as well, um, but it was worth it, you know, to the black community at Oregon State. So every year, and I don't know if they still do it, but when I was there, every year they would have this step show. And when I tell you this was like the best step show on the West Coast, <laughs> We was flying in to come to this step show, like, and it was just a lot of fun. Um, but we always had to fight really hard to get that step show to happen because it brought a lot of black folks. And in a white community, it's like, uh oh, where where are all these black folks descending from? Where you, you, right. you, know, you know? And so, um, but we fought really hard every year to make sure that happened because it was important to us. And mm -hmm. so, I think that support piece from the um, the institutional support uh, is critical for an for these organizations to thrive. And yeah, that's not something that at an HBCU students have to deal with. Um, there was something that you said, oh, I wanted to touch on, and then I wanna wrap up because I, I, I do recognize we're getting close to time um, if we're not already over. Um, but I want to touch on something that you said about supporting all, or you said supporting the HBCUs and I said supporting all HB, HBCUs. Um, as the graduate of you know historically white institutions, I still value and see the importance of HBCUs. I oftentimes feel that there are only certain HBCUs that people care about. And so you named some of them earlier. So like Howard, Hampton, Spelman, Morehouse, you know, maybe Clark Atlanta, FAMU, but some other institutions don't get the recognition or the financial support um, that they deserve. And in some ways, I feel like that lack of support for some of those other institutions is, a part of elitism, 
is part of because uh, I guess of all the schools I named, I probably only named like one or two public institutions. So it's this elite nature of some of these institutions. And in some ways, I think, and this might be a controversial statement, but I think that some HBCUs, some HBCUs benefit from aligning themselves with whiteness because more white folks know of a Howard. You know what I mean? And so then they start to recreate some of these hierarchies at those institutions. But what that also does is harm the smaller schools like maybe a Oakwood or a Fort Valley State or you know other institutions that are not as well known. And so I guess the point that I'm making is that I think that we as a society, as a black community have to do better about supporting all HBCUs and not just the more popular ones. And what are your thoughts about that and some of what I said? Well, I think it's supporting well, I guess it really depends because I think when you think about supporting HBCUs outside of like celebrities who, you know, come in and they give like their scholarships um, as a graduate, right, of an institution, the goal is for you to support that institution that you came from. And so I think that's just, that's the starting point, right? Like you should donate back to your institution in terms of where you got your degree and then yes, spread out. But I do agree in terms of, because I think there's like 101 HBCUs that are left. At the beginning, it was like 121. So we've had like, I think like 20 something have closed down, um, A, enrollment, lack of funding. And so it's important, like you said, for us to find ways to support those smaller institutions. Um, and I will disagree in terms of benefiting from whiteness. I think that you benefit from geographical location. You get what I'm saying? So if you think about Howard University is in Washington, DC, there are major corporations that are housed in Washington uh, headquarters. If you think about like Atlanta. Um, and so I think location also matters, um, but I do agree that we should be able to find ways not only to support your institution, but also support and just even talk about those smaller institutions because they're still servicing individuals. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is, you know, just a recognition. And so I would say that um, I don't like, I know Michelle Obama does, you know, National Acceptance Day, but like wearing your t-shirt, like in terms of university that you went to, and so granted, there is only a handful, you know, even Howard University, we are not, not every black person goes to Howard University. So our enrollment numbers, even of African-American males are still small compared to African-American males enrolled in other universities that are even HWIs. Um, and so I think it's how do we get that recognition out there in terms of not taking away from, you know, one institution, but just highlighting another. And I think maybe as HBCUs, we can connect more. So Howard, I'm not sure they're already doing this, so let me not overstep, um, can connect with uh, Fort Worth, um, that university. Did I say it was? Fort Valley State. Fort Valley State. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of like joining forces or um, I know one thing that Howard at least is able to do, um, I can take classes at University of Maryland if I wanted to. So if Howard is a consortium where we can take classes at other universities if a particular class isn't offered at our institution. And so more partnerships with smaller HBCUs is one way that we can support it. Um, but trying to figure out financial support 
um, is important because everyone's struggling. Even as famous as Howard University is, it's still a struggle. Um, so no HBCU is above a struggle, regardless if you're a popular one or uh, one that's not as popular. It, they are, are all struggling. Um, and so- Let me clarify too. So when I say, and I appreciate everything that you shared. And I, I think that the way that I said like uh, benefits from whiteness, I think I need to clarify. I, I mean, in terms of external white folks who see these institutions. So I think given the, you know, racial unrest, civil unrest related to the loss of black life in this country, we've seen an outpouring of support for HBCUs, which okay. is important. Mm -hmm. Many of them are the schools that we often hear about. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I mean. So I guess benefiting from whiteness in terms of like benefiting from white guilt where these these rich white folks are like okay let me give my million dollars to these this these schools um and they're often not the schools that and like you said they all need the support but some of them are smaller some of our smaller HBCUs need more financial support, but because they're less well known. And one might argue, well, that's the fault of the development office at those institutions. They're not doing their job. And, um, and maybe it's some of that, I don't know. But I also think that uh, that's, well, that's what I mean when I say like mm -hmm. benefiting from whiteness in terms of like the large gifts that have been given to our, uh, to certain HBCUs that we often hear about. So that, I guess I should clarify that. Um, well, we're gonna wrap up before okay. we do. Uh, a quick question that I have, and I'm gonna start implementing um, on my episodes where I have guests where I'm gonna ask them the same question each time. So I have two questions for you, but I'll ask the first one first um, because it's relevant to what we're talking about. If you could share in one sentence to a high school senior who's considering HBCUs or historically white institutions, what words of advice would you give to them? Well, I can't say in just one sentence. Um, whatever institution that you are considering, um, make sure it's a good fit for you. Um, and by making sure it's a good fit, go and visit that institution, go and sit into some classes. Um, and it's kind of hard because you're still young, you're still trying to discover yourself. Um, but if you sit in the classroom, for example, and you notice that you're the only black student in that classroom, can you be okay with that? Can you be okay with people looking at you? So <laughs> what are your thoughts? And some people are okay with that. And for some people it's like, nah, like this is not the environment for me. And so you wanna make sure that whatever institution that you're at is a good fit. Is this a community that you feel welcomed in? And that can be anywhere. So I would always say, visit the school, go sit into a classroom. Um, not just on the day that they're doing tours, just on your own to kind of get a sense, if you can, because I know sometimes it's not possible, especially if the school is in a different state, but I will always encourage you, visit the school, talk to people, reach out, go to their website, email a student, you know, if it's like freshman, king, you know, uh, you know like there are different classes, you know, freshman, class king or, I'm so messing this up, but um, email them like, hey, what's your experience? Um, and I think getting a general idea before you go, because like there are some people who can go to university, it could be HBCU, but it was the wrong fit. So Bowie State was not the right fit for them. Howard was the right fit or Spelman wasn't the right fit and University of Maryland was the right 
fit. Um, so go where you are comfortable. And I think that's really important. Don't go to any school because of a name. Go to a school where it feels right for you. And if it starts not feeling right, visit somewhere else. There are definitely people who have transferred. Um, so don't sit in a space that you are not comfortable in because it's going to hurt your psyche. Um, it's going to affect it. I know we talked about racism and I'm sorry, this is getting a little long-winded, but racism and experiences, experiences of racism affect you, affect your psych psychologically, they affect you academically. So it's not just you feeling bad, but it's going to impact your success if you don't have the right buffers. So community is really, really important. So best advice, visit and find a place where you fit in and you feel comfortable and you feel safe. And I think you found that in terms of even at Maryland where you've experienced passing that bus stop, but you were still able to find spaces within the university where you feel safe and you feel supported and you feel comfortable. So I think that's important. Thank you. Thank you so much. And my last question is, what do you love about being a Black lady adulting? <laughs> Not about my podcast, but like you as a Black lady adulting, what do you love about being a Black lady adulting? Oh gosh, that I'm over 21 and I can drink. <laughs> that's my only, and I can drink illegally. <laughs> Responsibly though. But, <laughs> but adulting sucks, man. Like, <laughs> I can travel on my own. Like, but yeah, um, I can enjoy life. So I can find time to enjoy life. So that's what I enjoy about. Adulting while black. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Thank you, Jokina. And now for the My Girlfriend segment. So I'm going to try to keep this segment brief as I know I keep running over the 30 to 45 minute mark allotted for each episode. Thank y'all so much for hanging in there with me each time. So today's My Girlfriend segment is dedicated to Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Kamala is a California native born to immigrant parents. Her mother from India came to the U.S. as a graduate student at UC Berkeley. Her father also went to UC Berkeley as an international student from Jamaica. He is now a professor at Stanford University. And if you know anything about California schools, many folks who grew up on the West Coast take a lot of pride in the California schools and UC institutions. So USC, UC Berkeley, Stanford, etc. Kamala could have gone to any one of those institutions and very likely could have attended one of those for free being that her father was and still is a professor at Stanford. Instead, she intentionally chose to attend an HBCU when she attended Howard University. And now she's the first in so many categories. The first black woman elected to San Francisco's district attorney, the first black woman to be elected California attorney general, and she's now the first woman, black and Indian woman, and HBCU graduate to be the vice president of the United States. She is also an illustrious woman of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And while I encourage everyone to take the educational paths that work for them, I cannot not acknowledge the significance of a woman of color who attended an HBCU being in the White House as vice president. I salute you, Soror, and I look forward to seeing more of what you will do to enhance this country. And I thank you for your service to all mankind. 